Deuteronomy chapter 26. We start today in verse 3, but let's review verses 1 and 2 to give us a running start. It says, And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it. So what follows is to be done once you come into the land. you understand? Not before they cross over the Jordan River. When they cross over the Jordan River and take possession of the land, then God has done what he has promised. And God does not expect you to do what you've promised until he demonstrates his faithfulness. So verse 2, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground. Did the people plant these crops? No. no, they came into the land. The crops were already there. Which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. He's given them the food that's already in the fields, already on the vines, already in the trees. And put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. That will be Jerusalem, but it's not Jerusalem yet. Israel was in the land how long before they took possession of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount? At the time of King David, so over 400 years. There were 400 years of the judges that they're in the land. And at that point, they're still following the tabernacle around. And in the days of King David, David says, I'm going to build a permanent house to the Lord. And God says, you will not because your hands are full of blood. But your son Solomon will build it. Solomon built the temple on the threshing floor of Aruna that David had purchased. And from that point on, the temple was the home that God indwelled. So did they not bring any produce for 400 years? They brought produce from the time they entered the land. What I'm saying is to the place where... To the tabernacle, but not to the temple, because the temple didn't exist. So that's what I'm saying is the last clause of verse 2. They would bring it to the tabernacle, wherever that was, but once the temple was built, then God left his temple there, and that's where he chose to make his name abide permanently. Prior to that, the tabernacle would move around periodically. So we're up to verse 3. And you shall go to the one who is priest in those days. What does it mean, the one who is priest in those days? It means the high priest. That's right. And say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God. That's kind of strange, the Lord your God. In the Septuagint it reads, the Lord my God. So who made the change? That remains to be seen. But at any rate, it's a declaration to God himself. Can anybody tell me who Ananias and Sapphira were? They were the couple in the book of Acts who lied to God, and how did it go for them? Not well. They died. So this is a direct, a direct declaration to the Lord our God. That I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. So it's a declaration, an acknowledgement that you, Lord, have done what you swore to do. You have been faithful. You have kept your word. Should that surprise any of us? Does God break his word? Never. No, never. So verse 4. Then, only after the declaration that I acknowledge God has done what he promised... 
Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Now who's the your God? It's pointing to the person who brought it. So they've acknowledged that God was faithful and now the priest says, okay, now he's your God. You've acknowledged that. You've said it with your own words. And we'll set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Why? To give God the honor for it. Yeah, not because it was too heavy. But maybe in part because there's much to be done yet. We're not done. We've set the basket before the Lord. That's not enough. Verse 5, And you shall answer and say, Before the Lord your God, my father was a Syrian. It's actually an Aramean. Aramean. Where did Abraham and his people settle before they came into the promised land? Padan Aram, which is where Aramean comes from. So it's a recognition that our family settled in Padan Aram before it came into the promised land. That God brought us not just to Padan Aram, but all the way into the land. What does it mean it was about to perish? There was famine in the land. Why did Israel go down into Egypt? Did Egypt come up and capture them and force them into Egypt? No, there was famine in the land. That's right. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 41 and see how Israel came down into Egypt. Genesis 41. Starting in verse 53. Remember, Joseph had interpreted a dream to say there would be seven really good years and then seven really lean years, right? And he explained to Pharaoh that they needed during those seven really good years to bring extra grain into the barns to be ready for the bad years. When we come to verse 53, it's time for the bad years. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was where? In all the lands. That means even the land of Canaan. But in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth. Does that let you know that it was not a limited localized famine? And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain. Because the famine was severe in all lands. Perhaps we haven't given due consideration to these verses. When Israel comes out of Egypt, there's a great mixed multitude that comes out with them from all lands. How did people from all the different lands come to be slaves in Egypt? Because it's right here. They're hungry. They come into Egypt to buy grain. What happens when there's no more gold or silver? They end up selling themselves into slavery for food. 
Slavery is bad. Starvation is worse, apparently. So verse 42, when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Huh? Why are you Exactly. Why are you sitting here doing nothing, just looking at each other, wondering what's going to change? They said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. That's how Israel ends up in captivity down in Egypt. They sell themselves into captivity in order to buy grain. Let's go to Exodus chapter 1. In Goshen, they were in a good part of Egypt. <clears throat> when they first went down into Egypt, Egypt was ruled by the Hyksos. The Hyksos were from Padan Aram. They were relatives of the children of Israel. Then when it says in the next couple generations, and there rose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, the Coptic Egyptians had overthrown the Hyksos. And now here's this great number of Israelites, relatives of the people they just overthrew, who could make up a great army in their land to try and take back the government for the Hicks house. So that's more legitimate than we might think. Yeah, yeah. So Exodus chapter 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob. Reuben. Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. How many tribes is that? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Where's the other tribe? Where's Joseph? He's already, there. He's already in Egypt because his brothers sold him into captivity, which brought him to Egypt long before this. So verse 5 says, all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons open parent, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful, increased, and abundantly multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This is where the Coptic Egyptians had overthrown the Hyksos and taken back the land. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. Explains why they were afraid of these children of Israel. When we come back to Deuteronomy 26, I should comment on verse 5. Where it says, My father was a Syrian about to perish. The Tanakh translates it differently. The Tanakh, the Jewish published Bible, translates it as, quote, an Aramean tried to, do, tried to destroy my forefather, end quote, referring to Laban and what he tried to do much earlier. But when you look at the Hebrew, the Hebrew does not support the Tanakh's translation, merely supporting the fact that Abraham first settled in Padan Aram, and therefore his descendants, when they're just strangers on the land of Israel, the scripture describes them as being Arameans, because that's where their homeland was, that they had left 
to come into the promised land. Is that part of Syria today? Yes, that is part of Syria today. Which is why our English translated as Syrian. Verse 6. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Some people believe that that was for 400 years, but it was not. The reason they believe that goes back to Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 15. It's simply a misunderstanding. Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. It's called the covenant between the parts. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Avram, which is Abraham before God changes his name. Avram means exalted father. Avraham means father of a multitude. So once Abraham believes God, that God's going to give him a multitude of descendants, God changes his name to reflect his faith. So to behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he, that is the Lord, said to Avram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. The English makes it look like the four hundred years is attached to the afflict them, but it's not. It's the entire process. Does Abraham have any children when this promise is made? The answer is no. Isaac is born how much later? 30 years later. So from the birth of Isaac, Isaac is a stranger in a strange land. And that starts the 400 year clock. The time that Israel was captive in Egypt under hard bondage was 210 years. Okay. Back to Deuteronomy 26. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. This is part of the recitation that the person who brought the first fruits is speaking to God. Acknowledging that we were strangers in a strange land. That we went into Egypt voluntarily. But the Egyptians, they treated us poorly. And then verse 7 <clears throat> Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers. Put a thee in there. The translators forgot it. The God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. Does the phrase looked on means merely God happened to look down one day and say, oh my goodness, look what's going on. No, it means the Lord intervened on our behalf. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. This is a reference to the ten what? The ten plagues. Let us go back first to Exodus chapter 7. We are approaching the time of Passover. So I want us to actually look at each of the ten plagues. What did God do? 
Have any of you read any commentaries today that talk about prophecies and say God can't do stuff like that? These so-called miracles, they're just made up. Well, let's go look and see whether the Egyptians would agree or not. They're going to be repeated during the tribulation period for those doubters. Their imagination caused them terrible problems. Yeah, yeah. Who was one of the two witnesses in the tribulation period that will bring the ten plagues upon the world? Moses. <laughs> so, Exodus chapter 7, that's right. It's what we would call a curtain call, right? An encore. Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 19. We're just going to do the short version of each of the plagues. Exodus chapter 7. Beginning in verse 19. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh. That's important, in the sight of Pharaoh. And in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, <clears throat> the river stank, and, it <clears throat> and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. I want you to close your eyes and picture it. As they strike the river with the rod, what happens? The river becomes blood. But it's not just the river that becomes blood. People that are drinking from glasses of water, the water in their glasses becomes blood. So if you've watched the movie, The Ten Commandments, Pharaoh says, well, we heard of a mountain that spewed red mud. And that caused the water of the Nile to turn red. <clears throat> How did it cause the water in their drinking cups to turn red? Or in their pails? Or in their pools? In their swimming pools? Etc. But what did the magicians of Egypt do? Same thing. They were able to turn water red. But do you think their water actually turned to blood? No. But the waters that God afflicted, they turned to blood. The second plague is go to Exodus chapter 8, <clears throat> starting in verse 5. Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, <clears throat> and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. That doesn't seem like much of a plague, right? These little pets come up on the shore. Yeah, it doesn't just mean there's a frog here or there, does it? Yeah, it's a frog, frog everywhere. 
Frog, frog, everywhere. The frogs are covering the land. So if you go to step, you're likely to step on a frog. And what's the problem with that? The Egyptians worship the frogs. Those are gods. So now they're in a real pickle. The third plague is in Exodus chapter 8, verse 16. <clears throat> so the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice or gnats. They're not really sure which it was. Throughout all the land of Egypt. I think it was actually lice. Why did the Egyptians shave off all their hair? Because of the lice. They had a real lice problem in Egypt. And they worshipped them too. They were pantheistic. How many of you had a child who got lice in their hair? How it itches and itches and itches. Can you imagine having lice all over your body? Ugh. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth. And it became lice on men and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. All the dust of the land. Is that a lice here or there? That's lice everywhere. Can you all say, ooh, gross? The fourth plague, <clears throat> Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 20. <clears throat> starting in verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Why is Pharaoh coming out to the water? To bless, to bless it. To bless it and the pagan gods whom he says provides it. Then say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Is Moses asking Pharaoh to free the children of Israel? Just let them go worship me, that's all. Let them go worship me. Will Pharaoh let them worship the God of Aaron, Isaac, and Jacob? No. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. What's significant about this verse? God makes a distinction between his people and those who will not serve him. And I'll make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. The fifth plague is in Exodus chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing <clears throat> on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. This wasn't just the first one, it was all. This was all. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed, <clears throat> not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. I don't like the way they translate this as became hard. <clears throat> the Hebrew word is strengthened, meaning had courage. He had courage not to give in to the fear that was spreading across the land of Egypt. At this point, is there reason for the people of Egypt to know that there is a God in Israel who is making a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites? Yeah, they probably know it. Yeah. So they're probably coming to Pharaoh already going, what, what, are, what is livestock to the people in those days? That's their livelihood, their income, their wealth. Mm. Also... Yeah. The next plague, Exodus chapter 9, beginning in verse 8, the very next verse. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace, and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. Why does he keep doing these things in the sight of Pharaoh? Yeah, so Pharaoh doesn't have to say, well, I'm hearing rumors. Pharaoh can see with his own eyes. Also, Pharaoh's supposed to be a god. Pharaoh's supposed to be a god. Not a very good one, apparently. Yeah, he's not stopping this. <laughs> Verse 9, and it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then he took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. So up to this point, the magicians keep saying, hey, Pharaoh, we can do these kind of things. Don't give in to this. The sages say his two magicians there were the sons of Balaam. Sure or not, we'll have to wait and find out. Hmm. As if that's not enough. The seventh plague is in the same chapter, Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 18. But tomorrow, 
about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down. Does any hail rain down in the tribulation period? About the size of a car? Well, maybe not that big, but about the size of a person, right? So it says here, very heavy hail. It doesn't say how big, but these may not be just little tiny pellets. We don't normally say heavy when we say hail. No, we don't normally. Cause them to rain down. Does rain down mean one here or there? It's fallen like rain. I remember as a boy in Ohio being out in the fields when a hailstorm came up suddenly and the hail was coming down so hard it literally took your breath away. You couldn't get your breath. That's the kind of hail that's falling here in Egypt. Such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field. For the hail shall come down in every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. Now, do we see a little difference? Is God sparing the Israelites and all their stuff? The answer is, if they have faith and obey the word of the Lord, they will be spared. What if they don't? What if they say, ah, I'm going out in the fields to work anyway? They're going to die. Do you think by this time they already knew that all the other livestock in Egypt had died? Yeah, I'm sure they did. Pretty well the word has gotten around. Yeah. They didn't have radio. No, but I'm sure it got around, yeah. So verse 20, he who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. So are there people in Egypt that are beginning to understand? It says among the servants of Pharaoh, do you suppose these begin to form the mixed multitude? Those who are learning that there's a God in heaven? Well, if they had livestock, they had to live in Goshen already. Right? Because all the livestock had already been killed. Or have acquired some from Goshen. Yeah, but these people, some of these servants probably lived in Goshen. And they may well have. And Verse 20, but he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Yep, yeah, very bad move. Doesn't all, all the horses and stuff have perished at that time? Because it's, it says in chapter 14, the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen. So that not all of them. Well, I guess it depends on what you Remember, livestock, you know. Many oh. animals, they said. On the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the oxen, the sheep, a very severe pestilence. But it doesn't say every one of those died. Yeah. In the barns, in the stables. stables. Yeah. If you go down to verse 26, it says, Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. That's because they all went inside. <laughs> yeah. So what if they hadn't? Then the hail would have fallen there as well. So what is the point God's making here? Is God determining 
who your father is to determine whether you get judged? Nope. Or is it your faith at this point? It's your, it's your obedience, your faith, your willingness to follow the word of God. So we didn't get through with this. Verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Uh-oh. They've already lost any animals for food. They've lost the fish in the rivers. But now they have the crops in the field at risk. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail. And fire darted to the ground. What do we call that? Lightning. Lightning. Yeah. And the Lord rained hail on all the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. Which tells you they obeyed the word of the Lord. So that's the last of the plagues, right? Nope. nope. Turn the page. Exodus chapter 10. Time for the eighth plague. Let's look at verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. <coughs> So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened. And they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. How terrifying would that be? How many of you have ever been really, really hungry? And when you're really, really hungry and realize, and there's nothing in the fields, that would be terrifying. Then comes the ninth plague, verse 21, staying in Exodus 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. What must that have been? A very dense fog, maybe? Blindness. Yeah, but blindness you don't feel. Have you ever been in a fog so thick that you couldn't see anything? Had to be really humid. Had to be, to feel it. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. That's important. 
the Egyptians didn't even have the ability to have light in the building. The, the lamps wouldn't burn. The candles wouldn't burn. But if it's all that wet, that would explain why wicks won't burn. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Is that what God said? No. So turn to Exodus 12, where we have the tenth and final plague. Verse 29. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Something I wish the scriptures told us is what was the period of time encompassed by the ten plagues. It looks to us like it's coming one day after another. But could it have been spread over a seven-year period? I don't know. I don't know what the time period was. I sure would be interested to know. It almost had to be a time of clearing between plagues. And had to get rid of all the frogs. And had to get rid of all the lies. And, and somehow the Egyptians get more livestock. There had to be some passage of time. Yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, you know, if everything, all the you know, food's gone, you know, they're... You did. Yeah. I, so there had to be some time to... Yep, so there's grain in the barns that they've gathered in under Joseph's wise rulings, perhaps. <coughs> Though it's been a long time. How long they continue to bring and stockpile food in the barns, we simply don't know. But when we get to heaven and watch the videotapes, we'll know for sure. We know the locusts came pretty close after the hail. Because? Because it said what the hell didn't destroy, the locust chewed up. Yeah. So there had to be some that remained in some time that passed, but probably not too much. Let's continue, though. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah. Brother Lane, while we're going. Yeah. I uh, wanted to ask, did the blood in the water stay uh, throughout the whole time? And how are the frogs able to come up if there was blood in the, in the water? The answer is it simply doesn't say. We'll have to watch the videotapes. Thank you. Yep. Isaiah 66. The first thing that comes to my mind when I read through the plagues and how God separates the plagues upon the, those who hate him versus those who are his servants, it makes me think of Isaiah 66 verse 14, which is an end times prophecy. And as we read in Deuteronomy and talked about thereafter, the plagues are going to return in the day of the Lord. So in verse 14 it says, When you see this, that is God comforting and protecting Jerusalem, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, that is his protection and blessing, shall be known to his servants. And his indignation, that's the word za'am, that's the pouring out of God's wrath, 
on his to his enemies. Is there anywhere in scripture where God pours out his wrath on his obedient children? I can't find one either. Notice though there's two categories. His servants, those who obey him and follow him, and his enemies, those who reject him. How does one reject God? Yes, go to Deuteronomy 8.11. Yes, Sam? Just a quick question, or a quick comment. Job is distinguishable because he's being uh, tested. That's not wrath, but he goes through a lot of trials. He does, but God doesn't send them. Satan sends them. Yeah. 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 And that's the difference. But these say, excuse me, the, the same people that we're saying had faith and lived in Goshen and obeyed, you know, they're the same people who dropped dead in the wilderness because of unbelief. Yep. What did Daniel teach us last night about those who are walking in righteousness and then veer off the path and turn away from God? And it just seems like that's the human nature. Yeah, it does. Seems like the human nature. Yes, Betty. You went to mute, Betty. Did you mean to? What was it just in Isaiah 66? It was verse 14. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. This verse haunts me. It really does. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. How many people do you hear proclaim their love and deep devotion to God, but say, but we're not supposed to keep his commandments? That's the majority. Do they understand the meaning and significance and import of those words. I don't know. Go to Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. Back at the time of the ten plagues, we see God protecting his children and not pouring out his wrath upon them. In Isaiah 66, we saw the same thing. Let's look at Numbers chapter 24, verses 5 to 9. Numbers 24, verses 5 to 9. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. Like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than a gog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion who shall rouse him. Blessed is he who blesses you. 
and cursed is he who curses you. So what does Balaam's prophecy here say? That God will bless Israel so long as Israel is righteous before him. But his enemies says he shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. That's his wrath being poured out. Psalm 68, 1. Psalm 68, 1. It's a Psalm of David, of course. Paul Wilbur has a great song that comes from this psalm, if you've heard it. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. God pours out his wrath on whom? His enemies. Go to Psalm 97. Psalm 97, verses 1 to 3. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up whom? His enemies round about. I still have a lot of people, even in the Messianic movement, even the Messianic rabbis leading the movement say, Wayne, the believers have to go through the tribulation and suffer God's wrath. I say, where's that in the scripture? And they say, shut up. We don't want to talk about it anymore. Go to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42, verse 13. Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his children. No. Against his enemies. How many of you would like to be counted as God's enemy in the day of the Lord? Not me either. Go to Isaiah 59. You've lost Raiders. You've watched Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indeed, indeed. Isaiah 59, verse 18. If you've seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, then you've seen Petra. At least a few seconds of it. And then it goes back to Hollywood. Isaiah 59, verse 18. According to their deeds. What's another word for that, Daniel? Their works. Accordingly, he will repay. Fury to his adversaries. Recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. So his fury and recompense are not to his children. 
but to his adversaries. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Therefore, do you know what comes before? You are a holy people. The Lord loves you. Verse 9. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. Is there a period? No, there's a with those who love him, participle, ongoing action, and keep his commandments. Again, a participle, ongoing action. And he repays those who hate him to their face. Well, if those who love him are those who keep his commandments, who are those who hate him? Those who don't. They don't obey because they don't love. They don't love because they have no faith. And you pointed us last night to Hebrews chapter 3 to say we don't have to guess that that's what it means. The Bible is very clear. And let's go to 1 John chapter 4. That's the very definition of an unbeliever is one who does not have faith. Yep, you're absolutely right. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. The point the Bible tries so hard to get across is that if you say you love the Lord and don't keep the commandments that he gave us, that you're only fooling who? You're only fooling yourself. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I hear that verse all the time. God is love. God loves absolutely everybody, everywhere, all the time. Everything they do. Yeah, but you got to keep reading. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So you have to look at the word love in its original context as a Hebrew verb of action. Did God send his only begotten son into the world to die? Yes, he did. So that who would be saved? Whosoever believes. Yeah. Does that mean that God has strong, warm, tickly emotions for the sinner who hates his guts? No, it does not mean that. It means that God gave a way of salvation for all who would come to him. But verse 10 goes on to say, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what the scripture means by God is love. He gave everybody an opportunity to be saved by faith. 
except of course for the Calvinists, but well, we won't go there. Back to Deuteronomy. If one of us ends up in the lake of fire, was that because God wanted us there or because we chose? We chose the wrong path. God lets whosoever will may come. So back to Deuteronomy 26. I'm getting preachy now. Well, that was a lot of common in verse 8, huh? But that's what it means by in verse 8 by the mighty hand, the outstretched arm with great terror with signs and wonders. So this is part of what the person who brings the first fruits is acknowledging. That God did everything he promised he would do. He delivered us just as he promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. He did it through signs, miracles, and wonders so that who would believe? So that anyone who chose to could believe, including the Egyptians. What if Pharaoh had fallen down before the Lord and said, I repent of my idolatry? God would have forgiven him. He didn't, though, did he? He did not. So verse 9 says, he has brought us to this place. What place? The promised land. And has given us this land. A land flowing with milk and honey. Does that mean there literally were rivers, one flowing with nice, clean, white milk, and another with gooey, orange, and yellow honey? No, of course not. What does it mean? Yeah, it means it's good for agriculture. Plenty of food. What is one of man's basic needs? Food. So when they come into the land, is it a barren desert? No. It's blossoming with wheat fields and grapevines and olive trees and date trees and all the food they could possibly want. And how much effort did they put into it? Not a thing. That's why they're bringing the first fruits to say, God, you did this for us. We acknowledge your benevolence. Did God ever really make that promise to them? Well, let's go look. Go back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is before the ten plagues we just read about. Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. Danny and Susie made the point that God does not want any to perish. So if you perish, it's your fault, not his. Exodus 3.8 So I have come down to deliver you out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. So did God ever promise them a land flowing with milk and honey? Yes, before he ever brings them out of the land. Also, chapter 3, verse 17. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Didn't he just say that a few verses before? People tend to forget very quickly. 
Chapter 13 of Exodus. Now this is after the ten plagues. After the children of Israel are leaving Egypt with a large mixed multitude. Where does it tell us there's a large mixed multitude? Exodus 12 verse 38. So these are those that saw the plagues and said, uh, we want to go with you. And chapter 13 verse 5 says, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. Up to this point, God has not brought them into the land. It's all simply promises that God has made. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 24. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess. That means to inherit from generation to generation. A land flowing with milk and honey. Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13, verse 27. The twelve spies have just come back from the land of Canaan. Then they told them, verse 27, and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And is that not the symbol of Israel today? Two Israelites carrying a bunch of grapes between them. It takes two men to carry, and they can barely keep it off the ground. And then Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3. There's irony in that symbol, too, because they brought back the fruits that here it is, but we can't take the land. Yeah. 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 We went up and brought back these treasures, but hey, we can't possibly go take the land. Yeah. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3 is the verse before the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 3, it says, Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now let's go back to where we are, which is in Deuteronomy 26, verse 9. So now the person who has brought the first fruits to the high priest is making an acknowledgement to God that you have done exactly what you promised. Is that it? Let's go to verse 10. And now, behold, which means, hey, notice this. I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. An acknowledgement not just that you brought us to the place, but you have given it to us. And that it truly is as you described it. And these first fruits that I have in this basket, you gave to me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. 
So what did you see in these verses? You make the confession of faith first. Then you offer the first fruits. That's why the basket was set down several verses ago. Make the confession of faith first. Then offer your offering of the first fruits to the Lord. What does it mean here? And worship before the Lord your God. Yes, it means to prostrate yourself, to lie down, face first. That's exactly what it means. Why would one do that? Exactly. It's a sign of humility. It's humbling yourself before the Lord, saying, Lord, you are God and I am not. Verse 11, so you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you in your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. That word stranger is the gayer. It's the non-Jew. What does this mean? Does the stranger possess land in the land of Israel? If they marry into a tribe, but at that point they would be considered part. So here while they're still a stranger, they don't own a piece of land. So how do they eat? With the what? Everyone shares. Everyone shares. God said, don't reap the corners of the field. Leave them for the strangers. And when you do that, what are you acknowledging? That God provided this to me. And if God gave this to me, I can give to others. I can show the same kind of love to my neighbor that God showed to me. Let's go back to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. How often does God say to take care of the widows, the orphans, and the strangers? That's not what we're going to look at at the moment. Just food for thought as we turn. Genesis chapter 15. Verse 13. Then he said to Avram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. What do you suppose that word strangers is? That's the same word ger. When Abram or Avram was dwelling in the land of Canaan, did he own it? Did he possess it? No. Did the Canaanites allow him to live in the land and to live off the land and to share its resources? And if he has accepted their hospitality and their generosity, how should his descendants treat other strangers? The same way. So when we look at the word gear and we say that's the non-Jew, that's only when it's in the context of you being Israel and Ger being the stranger, that is the non-Israelite. Verse 14. 
But God also reminds Israel that you used to be the Gare. When you were in the land of Canaan, and the Canaanites allowed you to live in the land and live off the land and share the resources, that was very nice of them. When you went into Egypt and were strangers in Egypt and they mistreated you, that wasn't very nice. So which way did you want to be treated? And what is the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So treat strangers as you appreciated being treated when you were a stranger. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Why doesn't God have them do this before they go into the land? They don't have the land. God hasn't given them the produce yet. They're still technically strangers. He says, but once you come into the land and I've given it to you, then acknowledge me. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 26. When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the what? The stranger. The fatherless. Who are the fatherless? They're orphans. And the widow. So that they may eat within your gates and be filled. So not every year does the tithe go to the tabernacle and later to the temple. Every third year it goes to the Levites out in the land as well as the strangers, the fatherless, and the widows. Whom does God care for? All those who serve him. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14 verses 22 to 29. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. Let's look at that for a minute. Why does this say truly tithe? Yeah, it's infinitive of emphasis, right? It means honestly, truly, completely. Can you bring half of what you're supposed to bring and say, hey God, this is it? If so, watch out for Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Bring all that God has commanded you to bring. But notice it's not all the grain, right? It's the increase. The tithe is always on the increase. Verse 23, And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, which will be Jerusalem, right? The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. What if they stop bringing the tithe up to the temple? Then the book of Malachi gets written. Will a man rob God? Let's go look at that. Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 has nothing to do with putting gold into an offering plate. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. 
But you say, in what way have we robbed you? Why would they ask such a thing? They're so steeped in their sins, their consciences are seared. They don't even think they're doing anything wrong. In what way we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. What's the storehouse? That's where the food room is in the temple where the tithes are kept. That there may be food in my house. Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing. People picture this as gold coins raining down from heaven. Is this gold coins? No, this is rain. What happens to the land of Israel when they get rain in its season? It says that there will not be room enough to receive it. Back to Deuteronomy 14. I should have told you to keep a finger there, but I forgot. Verse 24, because the tithe is mentioned in relation to money right here and only here. But if the journey is too long for you, so that you're not able to carry the tithe, <coughs> meaning you got blessed so much, the journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem is what, about 75 miles? That's a long way to carry a whole bunch of stuff says, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall exchange it for money, take the money in your hand, and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Then it says, eat the gold, right? No. <laughs> says, you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink. For whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God. So what did you spend the money for? Food. Food items to replace that which you could not carry that far. And you shall rejoice, you and your household. Rejoicing where? Before the Lord your God in Jerusalem. And verse 27 says, You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. At the end of every third year, <coughs> you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger, there's the stranger again, and the fatherless, there's the orphan, and the widows who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So did the, I mean, this was like to be done 400 years later when you had a temple. Did the people actually... Before then, it was to the tabernacle. So, and did they practice that? And at what point did, did Malachi come in and say, when did you stop doing this? I mean, you got... Scripture doesn't tell us when they stopped. Okay. Simply that they, they did. They lost interest at some point. They lost interest at some point. Remember when Josiah said, hey, look what we found? They had not even remembered that there was a Torah. Well, also, they were, you know, doing grain offerings and other things to their so-called gods. Yeah, that's something that really ticked God off, is in the northern kingdom of Israel, when the crops came in, they would run and take an offering to Baal and Ishtar and thank them for the crops. And God said, ooh, I had enough of that. So what did he stop? 
he stopped the rains until after Elijah had his contest with the prophets of Baal. And then once the people said, the Lord, he is God, then what came? A little cloud the size of a man's hand, and then the rains came. And then it was food. Yes, ma'am? In in the third year, when they had the tithes, they were supposed to store up the produce in their their lands, in their gates, for the the priests, the Levites, the priests, the Levites, the fatherless, and the widow. Right? Yep, right. The they weren't supposed to take it to the temple. Right. Mm-hmm. And Danny and Susie say, when the temple sacrifices are restored, do you think, Wayne, that the nation will return with tithes? The answer is they're supposed to, but Malachi 3, when it says the Lord of hosts, lets us know they're not going to. They're going to go back to the, hey, this is mine. And how's that going to go over with God? Not too well. Go to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter thirty one. Because it's going to talk about something in verse 4, we may as well read verse 4. Moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests and the Levites, that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. What kind of support is that? That's the tithe and the offerings. As soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine, oil and honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the, the tithe of everything. And the children of Israel and Judah who dwelt in the cities of Judah brought the tithe of oxen and sheep. Also the tithe of holy things which are consecrated to the Lord their God they laid in heaps. In the third month they began laying them in heaps and they finished in the seventh month. So did Israel always ignore the commandment? No, not always. And let's go to Acts chapter 5. Since I keep mentioning Ananias and Sapphira, let's go read and see what happened. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Question, did they have to sell that possession? Did the Lord compel it? No. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. Is that okay? Yes. And brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Is that okay? Yes. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? So where was the heir? What did Ananias say when he brought in the portion? That this is all. So it wasn't that he only gave part. It's that he lied. While it remained, was it not your own? I mean, you could have kept it. You didn't have to sell it. After it was sold, was it not in your control? You could have kept 100% of the proceeds. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. 
So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her. Answered her? Hebrew. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Why didn't it mention back earlier that it, verse 2, his wife also being aware of it? She knew exactly how much it was sold for. And Peter says, was it for this much? And she says, yes. Is she what? Lying. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Do you know how the tithe worked for the animals? You brought the animals one at a time through a little gate. And every tenth one you hit with a paintbrush. And that was the Lord's. He chose which would be his. What happens if you then say, yeah, but those are the good ones. I'm going to take him these sickly ones over here instead. And go in and say, these are the ones that the God told me to bring. Then they're in danger of being like Ananias and Sapphira. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. Verse 13 goes on. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house. And also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. So you don't just take the tithe, but you make a declaration of, this is honestly the tithe and offering that God required. Do you see how that relates to Acts chapter 5? What if you're lying? Verse 14, it goes on, I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you've given to us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. When it says, look down from your holy habitation, that says, judge whether what I'm telling you is true or not. And he will. That's right. Yes, ma'am. When it says, give it any of it for the dead. When it says, give it any of it for the dead, that's a pagan practice, right? You've seen... Um, Egyptian mummies there on earth and there's jars of food and things that are stored there. Yeah. The day of the dead they set up altars for food. Yeah, it's, it's a pagan practice. And what does God say about doing things that the pagans do? Don't do it. So when you set aside food for the strangers, the Levites, the orphans, the widows, not for dead relatives. Okay. You set that plate out for Elijah, though. 
But he's not dead. An unclean use would be for something from idolatry. Yeah. Anything associated with idolatry is unclean. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 65. Why don't you do it, Acts 15? The four things that you had to do to show that you were willing to put aside the pagan practices and come and learn the rest. Yeah. In the morning, maybe because that, you know, is associated with death. Yes. Death is associated with sin. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep, when you have just buried somebody, you're unclean. Yeah. In Isaiah 65, starting in verse 2, it says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts, meaning what? Doing what they think is right, not following God's commandments, but doing what's right in their own eyes. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens. What does he mean there? What kind of sacrifice? Pagan idolatrous. And burn incense on altars of brick. Again, idolatry. Who sit among the graves, who spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh. So idolatry, uncleanness, unclean foods, God lumps it all together and says, it provokes me to anger before my face. Doesn't that make you want to be eating a ham sandwich when the Lord comes? If it does, look at chapter 66, verse 7, verse 16. Ah, 66, 17, there we go. What happens to those eating swine's flesh when the Lord returns? shall be consumed together, says the Lord. But didn't God say in the New Testament we can eat pigs? No, he does not. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 26, we're up to verse 16. Verse 16. This day, what day? That very day. The day they come into the land. The day that God gives them the sign of inheritance. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore you shall be careful to observe them. How? With all your heart and with all your soul. Isn't it just enough that we do it? Okay, God said I got to do it, so I got to do it. Is that good enough? Is that going to please God? It is not. Faith and love must come first. Then they will naturally bring you to obedience. Let's start in Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is the way it's been from the very beginning, is love and faith must come first. And which of those comes first? Faith, then love. You can't love a God in whom you have no faith. You don't believe exists. 
So when you come to believe there's a God and realize all that God has done for us, that's what causes us to love God, to appreciate all that he's done for us. And then he says, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29. But from there, meaning where you've been scattered around the world in captivity, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if. That word if is such a little word, but it has such power. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, Do you find God if you're apathetic? No. You must really want to know God. And then God will just overwhelm you with his presence. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We read verse 3 a few minutes ago. The promise to bring into the land of milk and honey. Verse 4 is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then the next verse, beginning in verse 5, is what's called the Vehafta, and you shall love. You shall love the Lord your God. How? Half-heartedly? No. With all your heart. With all your soul, which means even to the point of death. If tomorrow... The false messiah sends out an army and puts a sword to your throat and says, renounce this phony God or die. What must our response be? See you later. With all your soul, with all your strength or all your increase. And these words which I command you today shall be in your what? In your heart. What is the new covenant? It's the law written on our hearts. That's where God's always wanted it to be. Meaning it's your desire to do it. Your desire to worship God. To be obedient to him. Like a loving child responds to a loving father. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way. When you lie down and when you rise up. Why? Is it not enough to mention the commandments once? And then everybody, of course, will remember and obey? Do and day out, because we forget. What happened in Judah? For a generation, they would be obedient. The next generation, they would fall away. Why did one generation fail to teach the next? Let's not make that same mistake. Let's go to chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command you today for your good. Let's break that down for a minute. What do you notice about all those verbs? (laughs) To fear, 
to walk, to serve, to keep. Action. Their action, yes. Continuous. They're continuous, but they are infinitives. Infinitives. To walk in all his ways and to, and to love him, to serve the Lord God with their heart, with all your soul. They're defining what it means to fear the Lord your God. That's why it's not and to walk. This is what it means to fear the Lord your God. Keep a finger here and turn up to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Verse 2. A devout man, one who feared God with all his household. What does it mean that Cornelius feared God? He was obedient to the commandments of God. That's what it means to fear God. A bright way of saying this is Yireh Hashemayim, one who fears heaven. Deuteronomy 10.12. Let's go back there. I knew we were going to go back there. I said, keep your finger. It says, modern day believers do not recognize themselves as being grafted into Israel. This was to Israel. We are not Israel. Well, let's look first at Romans 11. Yeah. We're going to find it all over the New Testament, aren't we? Romans 11. What's it mean to be grafted into? To become part of it. To be a partaker of it. Not to be a tree planted beside it. But a part. So in Romans 11 says in verse 16, For if the first root is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree, you used to be a separate tree, were grafted in amongst them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, no longer a separate tree, but now a part of, the cultivated olive tree. Ephesians 2 uses a different allegory to explain the same thing. If allegory is the right term, if not, pick whatever term you like better. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, that at that time, that is before you got saved, You were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You used to be strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. You used to be a separate tree. Verse 19, now therefore, that is since you've been saved, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, no longer the ger and the nochri, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Fellow citizens, you used to be strangers and aliens, but now you are what? Fellow citizens, a part of. Is that why he says in Ephesians 4.17 on the next page? 
This I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. You're not part of that tree anymore. You are as John chapter 10 describes. Let's go to John chapter 10. How many flocks? Just one. John chapter 10. Verse 16. And other sheep. That's the Gentiles. A different tree. A different flock. I have which are not of this fold. As in the cultivated tree Israel. Them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock. No longer two separate flocks. When they get saved. They leave the flock. And come into the fold. One flock and one shepherd. How many ways can one shepherd lead one flock? One way. Then there's Galatians chapter 3. And Danny and Susie are probably saying, gee, I wish I hadn't brought this up. (laughs) Ah, but I'm glad they did. Because that was going to be my next point and why I said keep your finger here. Galatians chapter 3 verse 29. How many of you out there have been saved by faith in Messiah? And if you are Messiahs, that's you, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Not different from the Jewish people that have been saved, but part of, indistinguishable from, Okay, back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 11. That's right. Yeah. Why in 2 Corinthians 6 does Paul take verses given specifically to Israel and say they apply to you too, just the same way? Because you're grafted in. Once you're grafted into the tree, you're part of the tree. See, people have the error of thinking, you know, there's a different set. Now that we're grafted in, and there's been, it's like a new flock, it's a new set of commandments, it's a new way of happening, but it's not. Yeah. If you go back to the 4th century and look at all the decrees of the Catholic Church, what they're saying essentially is that Israel needs to be grafted into us instead of we being grafted into Israel. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13. And it shall be that, what's that next little bitty word? If you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then... I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil. So God said, I'm going to bring you into this land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be beautiful. Would you like to keep it that way? Got two choices. You can obey me and love me with your whole heart. And you will always have an abundance. 
or you can turn away from me and, well, go hungry. Human nature. Yeah. How did Moses put it? Let's look at Deuteronomy 13, verse 3. Deuteronomy 13, verse 3. If a prophet comes and says, stop following God, don't keep his commandments. Verse 3 says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Why was it, do you think, that in Acts chapter 10, when a voice from heaven says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat, that Peter says what? No. Not so, Lord, not doing it. That's not you, Lord. <laughs> yeah, he says, I've read Deuteronomy 13. I've read 1 Kings 13. I'm not falling for that one. Deuteronomy 30. Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. Right, it wasn't just idolatry, but stop following God's commandments. So to me, that's even more devious because it's like you've got a, a layer of truth mixed in with a whole lot of lies. Yeah, because what does Deuteronomy 8.11 say? If you stop keeping the commandments of God, you have forgotten him. You've turned away from God. Yes, Sam? So if the church is told that we're not to keep the commandments anymore, like you can eat pork, our response should be, not so, Lord. That was uh, some kind of dreamer of dreams or prophet that came along and said, what's his name, said you can eat it. Right, right. Just like in 1 Kings chapter 13 when a guy said, hey, I'm a prophet too. And God said, hey, forget what I told you. Just come home and eat with me. Meet what happened when the prophet went home and ate with him? Meet my friend the bear. <laughs> it was a lion, not a bear. You're right, but the church is very big today. Keep a finger here and go to Matthew chapter 7. The Lord told us that the wide road is not the right road. Matthew chapter 7. And And I was there, she says. Most of us were. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Everyone being talked about in verses 13 and 14 believe they're saved going to heaven. Says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Where's that gate leading? The lake of fire. Verse 14, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Why? Verse 15, beware of false prophets. So the majority have been misled into thinking that God wants us to break his commandments. 
Put yourself in the mindset of a Jewish person in the land of Israel who knows that Israel was sent into captivity three times by God for failing to keep the commandments. And somebody comes up to you and says, let me tell you about Jesus and how you can put away all these commandments and go eat pigs and have a good life. Uh, first thing I would say is, have you read Deuteronomy 13? Okay, anyway. Paul mentions that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If somebody comes with a different gospel, he said that in Galatians chapter 1 also. Yeah, and he even mentions someone who preaches another Yeshua. He even mentions someone who preaches another Yeshua. As if they're going to present Yeshua as a law-breaking Greek god. Yeah. There's a book back there on a shelf if it hasn't been checked out by somebody and not returned. That's essentially the title is the Hebrew Yeshua versus the Greek Jesus and talks about the difference of what Yeshua really was versus how he gets portrayed. But as time's about to expire, let me finish these verses in Deuteronomy 30, since you're open to it. Verse 2, 6, and 10. Verse 2 says, and you return to the Lord your God, that is after you've been sent into captivity for breaking God's commandments, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, Shema B'Kolo, according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your soul. It is not sufficient to obey God because, oh, I got it, or he's going to hit me with a lightning bolt. That's not what God wants. He wants you to love him and to be obedient out of love. Verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Again, do you see the love and the faith? And then in verse 10. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul. What does God want from you? Everything. He wants you to love him. And you can't love him without believing him. It just doesn't work that way. Well, we've run out of time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in the second half of Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 16.